Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy's Show and Tell. You know, Show and Tell is a show where we like to bring on cool guests to talk about something cool that they're working on. And today's cool guest that I, Tom, am going to be talking to is Dewam, and we're going to be talking about Noctis Labyrinth. So, welcome. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, I'm really glad that you consider me cool, so... That's great. I to a great start. Yeah, no, so it's funny. Like I say that that's like my standard opening and I, I would be lying if I wouldn't say that I, I, I will judge you after this and then I will determine if you're truly cool. <laughs> oh, but you're hold on, hold on though, hold on. You're drinking though out of like a stove top like espresso machine. Uh Okay. I, yeah, I am in need of some caffeine, so yeah. You're cool. You're cool. All right. That's it. Awesome. Okay. So, Duan, all right. So, because I want people to really know you. All right. And I'm not going to butcher your name with my my terrible Midwest <laughs> American tongue. So, h- tell us, who are you? Okay. All right. So, my name is Duan Figueroa Arrasol. I'm an Argentinian game designer. I recently released uh, Noctis Labyrinth, which is a series of adventures plus an expansion of world of dungeons by john harper a very influential game designer at least in my experience and i don't know i've been doing games lately i'm also an illustrator i do art and well on on a more local level i spent a lot of years organizing um gaming clubs and events as well so that's most of my experience Okay, so gaming history, though. So take us all the way back. When did you start playing games? And what were you playing? All right. So um, hmm. here in Argentina, uh, role-playing games are fairly niche. Like uh, RPGs are are already niche, uh, but in Argentina more so. So I started playing in 2013 for the first time for a local club which is called Sierpes del Sur. Uh, and that was the first time. And then I spent like the next two years uh, saving up my uh, allowances to uh, pay for the for all the games, uh, for all the books for D&D 3rd Edition. That, that was okay. my first game. And I started running with my friends and then kind of reunited with that club and started getting involved in. So... From two uh, thousand, no, sorry, I, I said thirteen. I meant two thousand and three. That's okay. That's, oh. that's a decade. You were off yeah. by a decade. Holy, okay. okay. Drink some more espresso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. Mm, I'm getting old. Yeah, no, that was uh, because I was thinking that I was thirteen. Um, I my first game was when I was thirteen. Then I spent the next two years out when I was uh, fifteen to start actually playing, getting some friends interested. And then reunited with the uh, club uh, in 2006. Uh, okay. Yeah. And from then on, I started getting involved more and more. I started um, running open games because the whole idea of that club was to get people in Argentina to know what role-playing games are. Um, so we ran free games open for everyone. Uh, I got to play with a lot of people. I got to play a lot of different games. Uh, right around 2011, we started getting into indie games. 
to try to diversify the the types of games that were played here, uh, because otherwise there were like only two or three games getting any kind of attention. And um, yeah, after that, uh, some events and stuff like that. I stopped in 2018. So I have like uh, around of organizing events. I have around eight years of that. Uh, okay. Yeah, but I got a little bit more of actually playing with um, with people, uh, like with, with any kind of people that wanted to approach uh, RPGs in my town. So yeah, and I, I don't know. And uh, I started with traditional games, like most people, because those are the most known. Um, then I got into indie RPGs. You know that uh, explosion of indie games around uh, 2010s, which were mainly uh descendants of the forge uh style of uh design and then i got a little bit into osr and i've been kind of mix and matching ever since okay yeah yeah it's interesting well, i want to talk about osr because there's this weird dynamic like this especially in the last i feel like three to four years this strange osr and indie merging that i'm seeing that i'm really digging so all right so let's talk about it then all right so what is the elevator pitch for noctis labyrinth okay so noctis labyrinth is a compilation of weird fantasy adventures powered by the apocalypse that is uh games that are compatible with the original apocalypse world and um you are a set of adventurers, mainly outcasts, that are pushed into Noctis Labyrinth, a huge uh, net of canyons and um, and tunnels uh, in look for the artifacts of an ancient civilization. Uh, it is a fairly classic uh, dungeon crawling setup, but with a weird twist that I think... Uh, it's a, a kind of uncommon and um, plays a little bit on on uh, classic fantasy. It's a very weird twist. I was, I mean, I've been going through this thing, and I'm like, oh, this is okay. This is kind of weird. And then I got to the last one, and I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> all right, all right, he's doing this. Okay, all right. So then this game is it's a. Uh, the game itself, and the I think the use of just black and one color per page it gives it this very i feel like i'm it's old but i also feel like i am in a desert so i wanted to ask you though about like when you were making this game what is the if you could like boil it down to like what is the aesthetic of this game and what were your inspirations for the game yeah so uh the main the main visual um the main visual inspiration was 70s, late 70s uh, comic books, uh, mostly European, but also some uh, uh, over here. Like, um, of course, uh, Mobius is one of one of the greatest influences in artists in general. But I'm also very inspired by Kiki Alcatena, which is an Argentinian, um, an Argentinian uh, comic book artist. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh, there's a lot of like those old um, fantasy 
right before we got to, I don't know how to explain it, but right before we got to this standardized high fantasy aesthetic that we have right now, uh, before that, nobody really knew how fantasy should look. And there was a lot of, um, in pulp era um, fiction, there was a lot of overlap between sci-fi and fantasy. So that was the other one. Uh, I was uh, growing a little bit tired of elves and dragons and all that. And I wanted to switch it up a little bit with uh, weird fantasy slash side fantasy. It's funny because I'm a, I'm a big comic guy. All right. So now that you say that, the, the Mobius like vibe, just like some of like some classic like Fantastic Four things that they did is just like... I'm get, I I see what you're doing now. Okay. Yeah. And there's even there's even almost a you do almost like a comic strip illustration for one of the encounters with knights in the desert. I do. Yeah. And also with the Quetzalcoatlus as well. Uh and with Noctis. Yeah, I use sequential art. I uh I was about to write a blog entry because I've been doing some uh dev blog on my HEO page. Uh, about how underutilized is sequential art in um, in games in general. But, you know, we're talking about RPGs. So in RPGs, uh, there's, um, there's a trend of illustration that has become a little bit more problematic now with uh, the advent of AI art, where it is very obvious to see how little illustration is valued on the industry. And yeah. one of those issues is that um, people can, uh, like designers or even uh, people who are buying the game, see illustration just as a pretty picture that uh, kind of calls attention to a book or to a page or that breaks uh, the pacing of the text. That's the most that you get out of it. And I consider illustration to be as much game design as actually writing the text. So that's what I wanted to do. It, so I, I'm going to jump then to another question that I had later on because you, I don't, we really haven't talked as much about you are an illustrator. You did the illustration for this, this book. Yeah. So, all right. So I wanted to ask you though. So when it comes to creating an illustration and then an RPG compared to like an, making a game, do you have a different design philosophy or how do you marry that de de design philosophy. Yeah, I mean, this one, mm, this is the first one that I actually get to do the whole thing, uh, layout, illustration, and, and writing. Um, the other ones, I did a little bit of illustration. Maybe I have another game that I uh, released through crowdsourcing called Deep 90 Fathoms, but in that game, I used... Um, Gustave Doré, who is uh, one of my favorite artists ever, um, instead of doing my own. So I have a relationship with, uh, an established relationship between art and text. Uh, I think that's really important. So I basically approach, uh, in this instance, I approach illustration as game design, like what is on the page because I was restricted by size. Uh, this was a scene quest release. I was uh, restricted by size and by format. I had to um, try to make every page count and be accessible. And 
adding illustrations that will complement the text and text that will complement the illustration uh, was one of the goals. And in a lot of ways, Knock this Labyrinth is about experimenting with layout and art as tools of creating design. I don't know if there's a different approach. I know that I'm fortunate that I'm that I can do the whole thing. Like uh, I know that there are writers that cannot um, that they cannot illustrate. I don't consider myself a writer. I'm just a guy who writes sometimes. <laughs> I don't consider it to be the same, but I do consider myself to be an illustrator. And I don't know. I made illustration for other games. Uh, I worked with Mordai Press for a long time. They released uh, Torchbearer supplements. Uh, that's a really cool game. I also, like on the second edition of Torchbearer, got some of the, uh, I got some art pieces there. Uh, so I worked for Burning Wheel Headquarters a little bit. And the reason why they sucked me out is because I was already a, an avid Torchbearer player and they knew that I knew how the game works. So this is similar. Like, uh, I know how the game that I'm designing works. Uh, let's try to make art that represents it and that uh, can convey its themes and its inner workings in a similar way uh, than what actual text does. Oh, it's just... All right, so also, Dwayne, I didn't, I didn't tell you this beforehand. We started recording, but also... Feel free to say whatever you want to say because I'm about. I throw out like I just dropped so many takes, much to my <laughs> much to my co-host chagrin. All right, so my take here is that. All right, so you have these bigger games. All right, you've got your Dungeons and Dragons, you got your Pathfinders, and the artists are great. But a lot of times, what these bigger companies will do is they'll put out they'll hire artists, they'll put out art prompts, and they'll just take what they get and they yes. put it in there. And there is a and it just, it, yeah, it's pretty art, but what I've seen a lot of times from um, more indie games, because they are operating in such a, they have to be way more intentional with it, and your game just kind of, and obviously there there's an aspect to it that you did the illustration and the writing, but it definitely just flows together. Yeah. So much, I don't know, it's good. Uh, and also, <laughs> you are definitely, don't say that you're not, I can, all right, so don't say that you're not a writer, because there's some great language in here, and I think there is some of your um, your rawness comes out, and I actually made a note, all right, that I, I appreciated your very plain um, writer's voice in this. Uh, page 42, I wrote, I wrote this down. All right, so you talk about foregone conclusions. Oh. And you, just, <laughs> you just say, these suck, don't do them. And it's it's a very specific type of type of writing. You're writing to the person reading the game. Was that intentional or is that just how you write? Yeah, no, totally. Uh, that was intentional. Like, um, I remember, and most of... Uh, of the fact that this game is readable is thanks to Mark Shepard, who's the editor of this game. Uh, Owen uh, O'Connell of Morley Press also gave it a pass, but the main editing went uh, by Marks. And um, yeah, th there were some long conversations about how I wanted this game to be conversational in nature, like uh, okay, because. Sometimes I feel like GMs are afraid that the game is telling them how to do things. What I wanted to accomplish is 
uh, I want you to feel like I'm sitting right beside you at the table and I'm helping you out. But it's like, ah, don't do this or don't do that. And and it's not about giving an order. It's more about, hey, I'm trying to help you out. This is my take on how games should be run. And uh, that's what I consider games to be. Like the, a game is a designer's opinion on how role-playing games can be played. Uh, the opinions are to be ignored or taken to different degrees. And so I, I wanted to do that. And if I did that correctly throughout the text, when I got to, when you get to page 44, we have established uh, a very basic relationship of, you know that I'm here to help you out. Uh, so I'm going to tell you this and have you consider it. Uh, so that's basically it. It's not more than that. But if I went like, very dry and very serious. I think that's a little bit condescending sometimes. Yeah. And I think that I, I might have gone over it, uh, like overboard a little bit, but uh, Marx was able to rein me in and made it, uh, made it a little bit more friendlier. No, it worked because it was uh, one of my big complaints about a lot of games is that they so often wind up reading like a technical manual and there's something to be said about that because you can then learn the rules but they're not entertaining to read yeah and i want what i look for in games is i look for obviously you know cool mechanics art but i also really like when i'm reading it and it's mm-hmm. just it's good to read on its own i'm like oh this is i sat down and i enjoyed what i read so yeah i did like that um, so, all right, so bring it back to Noctis Labyrinth. All right, so what is, you say it's, it's World of Dungeon, all right? So you use yes. John Harper's kind of, you hacked it all up. What is, what's World of Dungeon for somebody who wants to know what is the mechanics oh, yeah. in Noctis Labyrinth? Yeah, World of Dungeons is a very streamlined, powered by the Apocalypse game that is um, kind of a powered by the Apocalypse take on OSR style playing. Right. Okay. So you have this adventuring party, fan, uh, old school fantasy style with uh, um, World of Dungeons. What it also does is it simplifies the uh, systems that we have grown to learn as powered by the apocalypse to a very simple two d sixes roll, uh, failure, partial success, and, su- and success. Um, it is, it is explained really plainly. It's only like three pages long. Uh, so that ha- those cemented a really solid foundation to expand upon using the knowledge that I had of other, uh, powered by the apocalypse games. I was able to build upon it, knowing that they share the same infrastructure, right? Okay. Okay, so how does this then, it's a OSR streamlined version of Powered by the Apocalypse. How does this handle then, like, when people think about Powered by the Apocalypse, they're always thinking about playbooks and moves. How does that, like, how do you streamline that? Well, I think that John did a great work on that. And it's only, it's, it's a free game. It's only four pages long. Uh, the best way to see it is just read it. Uh, yeah. However, like it is still what uh, most Power by the Apocalypse games do is just 
took uh like if you have a full playbook with a lot of uh special moves in world of dungeons you have the classic uh character classes from dnd and each one has like four special abilities which are the same thing as a move as a special move in, in other pvta games and you have your hp like a classic dnd but you have that component of uh degrees of success and of involving the players on what the stakes are uh on a roll uh that gives that fiction first fail forward aspect of a police world to a, to a more osr type framework okay so it's almost it's it's almost that this is almost like an oxymoron in the sense of you have these this with Power by the Apocalypse, you always think about these very loose fiction, you know, forward games, like you said. But then with OSR, I almost always I think about like the the crunch of it. And then looking at your game itself, it's fantasy, but there's this surrealism to it. So, what sort of feeling are you trying to evoke? Oh yeah, at the table. Yeah, and what? Does the so like you, you? What is the feeling you want people to get reading the game, and then you sit down for a game of this? You're playing Noctis Labyrinth. What does that perfect game look like? Well, th- this is an exploration game, and this is a this is a weird fantasy exploration game. I want to be able to surprise you, and I know that it's impossible for me as a designer to surprise you all the time. So I'm trying to give you the tools, both the GM and the players, to surprise each other. Uh, this is not, not about being random. Like, uh, uh, if you read the game, I don't have like a huge amount of random events. There are some, but there's, that's not the main thing. It's more about um, presenting a very complex world with uh, while withdrawing uh some information so i give you very specific details and how do you connect those dots it's on you and on the table and that's what i in my experience feel that's when the weird comes out because these two nodes of information are very specific and you may have a difficult time tying them together in a linear way, so you will have to elaborate on that. And the, um, the ideas that pop up on the table, that's where it gets weird and interesting, and, and you get to surprise each other and, and, and explore each other's minds, like in most role-playing games, but, you know, this is a more purposefully done. Interesting. So I... So I- I did definitely pick up on the exploration aspect of it, not just because of the very first, the opening adventure here, but just in general. And I really dug that. And I want to ask you about that. So I am currently, I'm my regular group. We're doing a hex crawl. All right. Mm, That's, yeah. And we are having so much fun with it. Just this exploring new hexes. It's there's a, there's a real, a, a relaxedness to at the table. So, but you talk about a point crawl. Mm, right. Yes. And I've seen this term. Be- I've seen this term in other places recently. Um, what is a what's a point crawl? I think that uh, point crawl stripes one level of complexity from hex crawl. Like if okay. you have, and I said it in the game. Like if you have points 
of interests that are interconnected, you may want to elide the process of getting from one point of interest to the other uh, in a in a similar way that um, sometimes like when you're designing a dungeon, the those are most of them they are flow charts less yeah. than an actual map. Uh, you can apply the same thing to overland travel and to exploration in general. I know that um, ultraviolet grasslands does this very well. Uh, I my other game, uh, the United Fathoms, uh, also is a point crawl, and it's about uh, exactly that. It's about uh, knowing that what the players remember are those points of interest, and maybe some event that happened between point. A and point B. So if you distill the whole uh, hex scroll process, which I enjoy, I have played uh, hex scroll games, but if you strip that down, then it's about landmark that is interesting, uh, A, landmark that is interesting, B, and how you get there, like planning, getting your gear, maybe encountering something weird in the way, uh, maybe getting lost or sidetracked and then eventually reaching that other place that will prompt you to another weirder or cooler or more interesting place. And then you get going and keep playing. That's also the reason why I talk about mapping and being able to backtrack because uh, maybe returning uh, is not always as interesting as delving or at least that's that's my experience. So I trying to align uh, the hmm, what you call it the logistics of traveling between points of interest was one of yep. the goals of the of Noctisnaring design. So just so people kind of have an idea of these points of interest, can you give us an example of what of one of the points of interest from yeah. the game? Sure, like just the fact that you're delving into a huge canyon. Uh, shrouded in black mist that sometimes uh, becomes alive. I think that's interesting enough. But even then, uh, the idea is finding the remnants of an ancient civilization. And one of the things that I wanted to do is show them as, show that canyon as a lived-in place. Uh, eventually, you will find uh, what is called a singing stone. And uh, that's a huge monument whose uh, original purpose is difficult to understand, but it also shows the culture and the uh, intelligence that the people of the of this ancient civilization had, and kind of uh, bridges the gap between the new young exploring adventurers and the old, almost forgotten uh, people who live in that labyrinth and made that hostile place their own. I really want to talk I really want to talk about that last adventure, but I'm not going to <laughs> just because I want people to read it themselves. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things I did notice about this game too is that it's three it's very it's three very distinct styles of games. Okay. In the sense the same aesthetic and everything, but like I, to summarize it, all right, and correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously you've got your exploration, you've got your, the second one is more like this boss battle, long encounter scene, and then the third one is a dungeon crawl. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Uh, why do all three? Uh, I don't know. I just want to keep people entertained. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's the main one. Like uh, shifting uh, play styles, especially in such a bare bones uh, system like uh, World of play, uh, World of Dungeons. Um, I think it's kind of important uh, because you never grow bored of it. Uh, and that's a, a good opportunity because since it is so bare bones, you can build upon it and you can build different things. Uh, but it's not only that. It's also the fact that um, all these are takes from my experience of playing. So uh, Noctis Labyrinth was born of this experience of having to run games mostly improvised for people who I didn't know uh, who were dropped by the club and needed like they wanted to know what role playing games were, uh, and I was like the guy who was uh, in charge of that uh, to some degree. So that's why um, the first exploration adventure uh, has more to do with, ex- I mean, ex- specifically exploration, but also exploring fiction, exploring and building upon fiction, and connecting different areas and different dots. So. Uh, players can feel like they're getting introduced into a rich world. Um, so that's the that's the first one. The second one is born out of my experience running games in events. In, uh, like we had these uh, two day long events that uh, where we ran like one hour long uh, sessions each. So we can get the most people to play the most games in this same amount of time. And learning about that, seeing my, um, you know, seeing the people, uh, my friends run those games, uh, gave me some ideas about how to structure a, an adventure to be able to be done in like one hour. So there's that. And, you know, those time constrained, uh, situations are fairly common like you maybe you don't have three hours to teach your games uh, your friends what a what a role-playing game is or maybe you're also in a club or in a or uh during an event uh like um i don't know a convention or something so yeah that that was the goal of the second one and also like uh, to flex a little bit uh about how a boss fight in a pbta game might work uh okay how do you run a good all right i'm jumping how do you run a good boss fight all right because this is something i always struggle with my frame of reference for that specific module was um i don't know if you ever played marvel uh heroic role playing Uh, i have not but that's that's the faz rip right phase rip is that what it is? No, that's uh, that's the first edition of it's not Cipher, is Codex. The first edition of Codex. Okay. All right, so Marvel heroic role playing. Yeah, All right, go you ahead. Can, you have the old uh, Marvel game. I'm I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about uh, one was that was released in during the I don't know maybe 2013, 2012, uh, okay. and it was a really cool game. And you built, um. The dynamic was to uh, play these awesome heroes, and every time that you fail or that you risk something, you gave the GM 
uh, points to spend. Uh, in that game, is called the Doom Pool. And uh, they will be able to administrate the that player uh, action economy and like kind of have it fight back. So the way that you handle it and how I port it to uh, PBTA is by basically every time you're risking something as a character, you are giving the GM the chance to hold those actions and then administer it from the uh, bad guy point of view. And that's, uh, I think that's better than, you know, some other games that do turn base because yeah. you don't have players, uh, you know, mobbing on one guy. How many times we had that situation where you had a, an awesome dragon, but the players are still like five and the dragon is just one a turn. And yeah, yeah, it gets completely beaten and you didn't get to, I don't know, do something cool with it. So this is a, like another way to see it. It's more like, okay, so the boss, like the big guy, is in control of the situation. And every time that you take a step, you are going to get some amount of resistance coming from the adversary. I mean, it makes sense that they would be like in control yeah. of the situation. So, okay. All right. That makes sense. Uh, noted. All right. So, <laughs> all right. Now, before I interrupted you, the third oh, that's, module was that's an that's an old classic dungeon crawling. Uh, I mentioned that I like that I actually really love uh, Torchbearer. That is a full dungeon crawling game. So I added my experience of um, of sitting down and having a slower pace. Okay, let's clear this dungeon and learn what it is. Uh, also, like have my own experience of trying to make dungeons interesting, have, uh, trying to make them look alive and uh, having them moving around the players so they can sense that they're intruding uh, another world uh, that is forbidden to some degree without you know crushing them and punishing them for exploring because the idea is that we want them to explore. Uh, and you know, if you take all the three games, sorry, all the three modules, you have uh, kind of a compartmentalized full campaign experience. So you have the first opening one, which is fairly loose, uh, kind of, um, we are trying to get a hold of what this Noctis Labyrinth is all about. You have a, a dramatic high stakes uh, boss fight, which can be like a cool ending or a cool middle point uh, where you get to, to try out your characters and to have them do something awesome. And then you have that uh, classic, once you have learned who your characters are and how the game works, you have that classic, okay, now let's delve into a fairly large dungeon and explore and uh, maybe get some answers to some of the mysteries we have learned during module one and two. It's yeah. I mean, it's a it's. I mean, you say that it's a classic dungeon. I mean, it, it it's there is this classic element to it, but it's it's cool. I like that you're the way that you've um, presented the information, mm -hmm. and also, all right. Let us not forget that you have 
tastefully used red and black <laughs> yeah. uh which is like i think about it like nobody it's so hard to use those colors when it comes to like text and to be able to actually read it yeah. and you did it <laughs> well I, I mean that it was a challenge so thank you for appreciating that uh i'm really thankful uh i will release the noir version you know how some um comics uh that are in color uh get released in black and white i will do the same uh okay. so, which will be more readable but you know so far i have gotten like a uh, good feedback on that i was a little bit worried but people seem to be able to read and enjoy it like yeah like yourself and uh i don't know uh, the restraining myself to one color and black was something that I really was looking forward to because uh, you can, by choosing the right color, you can convey a lot of um, a lot of feeling and a lot of uh, ambience just by restraining yourself to one. Yeah, 100%. Because you go right from the yellow of the previous one right to the red and black, and it just... Because I'm reading it on my iPad too, and so it just it gets immediately the screen, the room just gets darker yeah. as I'm reading it. So it's just it worked. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that you have the the first chapter was it's orange. Also, it was a tool to organize information as well. Like you know where you at because everything is orange on chapter one, everything is yellow on chapter two, and everything is red on chapter three. But um, it was a little bit about you know. Orange is the color of the desert. You are, even when you're not seeing art, you know where you are. Uh, yellow is more like high stakes, something that is actiony and urgent, uh, which will accommodate well to the type of situation that uh, people are uh, find themselves in in chapter two. And red is, uh, you know, bloody, uh, dangerous, ominous. Uh, yeah, and that shade of red was uh, specifically darker uh, because you are getting into a dark dungeon. So, yeah. All right. So I got it. So uh, this is not, this was not on the list of questions that I sent. I always ask everybody this. All right. I always, maybe you won't get tripped up. All right. <laughs> what was your favorite thing that you got to design for this game? Whether it was a mechanic, something you wrote, an illustration, something else, but when you were making Noctis Labyrinth, what did you make that was like, yeah, that's really cool? Well, I felt, of course, I like all of it, but I felt really smart about some really silly detail. And I think this is natural to all designers. Uh, if you find the encounters in um, chapter one, you will see that uh, they are structured like with lore bits that are useful mm -hmm. for the players. That's the typical situation where you have a player who says, oh, do I know anything about this, this monster so I can like fight it better or maybe escape? Uh, so you have those lore bits that are like um, kind of like um, dialogue bubbles in a comic. And I order them as well. So the GM doesn't really have to read them first. It's like, Okay, you got a success. You get the first one from top to bottom. 
uh, you got a really good su success, you get the two. And if you have a, an awesome success, you got all the information that there is here to to get. And that's like, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like that that um, was a challenge about writing uh, layout and art that uh, I felt really clever about uh, when I was solving. So I don't feel good about it. That's it's so funny that you mentioned that. Like that's you're totally right that that's like something some little thing that a designer would because there's just so much stuff in that's not what I was expecting you to say. So. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So interesting. Okay. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about. Um, all right, and this is kind of shifting gears a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, but you've talked a little bit about playing games in Argentina, but what's the design space like there? Oof. Is that, does that like, like even like maybe not Argentina, but in Latin America, because this is something I've just, I've seen a lot of people talking about, but from your opinion, what's it like being a designer and interacting with the other designers there? I think that the first thing that I can say about RPG Latam, which is kind of like the broad term that we use, uh, is that it's very young. Okay. And that doesn't mean that we haven't been doing this for a long time. It means that maybe just now, mainly inspired by the RBGC scene of, you know, of, of Southeast uh, Asia uh, movement. Uh, they were really inspiring for us because they got to present a different voice from the standard, uh, you know, Western um, RPG space. Now, it, so yeah, we, we're uh, kind of in growing pains, but you know, they, they are not like bad. We actually like our Discord server and the people that we come across in uh, on Twitter and social media in general. They're all cool designers, and we're kind of finding ourselves and, and getting surprised by each other's design. Now, Argentina, Argentina is kind of difficult. Like, uh, for a long time, design was relegated to those weird homebrews that people made out of playing Call of Cthulhu or Rollmaster, those old games that uh, maybe Vampire, which is not that old. Those old games that were the only ones that reached Argentina. So for a long time, we only got those games to choose. Um, especially like uh, gamers that, that started before me. Um, and a lot of those are very simulationist and they are not meant to be published. Uh, or if they are, like they are those... Like, are, are you aware of the of the term fantasy heartbreaker? Uh, no. It, there are those uh, fantasy heartbreakers are those monumental games that a lot of game masters uh, design, but while being completely isolated within their own group. Okay. So by the end, they they end it is like a huge manual that has very specific rules that made sense to them and to their group, but not necessarily so to the rest of the world. Uh, but when we got to introduce um, indie games in my local scene, 
uh, and we started showcasing them in, you know, in cons and events, we got people from all over the country to get to to get down here because it, this was the only space where they got to play those games, those indie games. Um, and I think that there was a, it was mind opening for a lot of us getting to read and play uh, these like less baroque, more straightforward, minimalistic games. Because in that way, we were able to not replicate the, that philosophy of more rules means more game, you know? Okay, yeah. I hope I'm summarizing this correctly. There is, I with the, with the Latin American games, it's definitely, like you said, they're younger games. I mean, I'm just now um, discovering them. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with... Um, started following you on Twitter, then also Federico Sanz on Twitter, and they're always sharing these sharing these different games. And I definitely think, obviously I know the there's like this, the European games are starting to really grow in the US, a lot of that thanks to, to Free League and, yeah. and all of that. And they have a very distinct design style and the nor- that Northern European style. And I'm starting to see the Latin American games also, just there is a certain design quality and i can't put my finger right on it but they're definitely unique uh, yeah totally yeah uh i know like to me the latin american designs powerhouse is brazil uh you you have a lot of amazing brazilian designers but i also think that a lot of the focus is on presentation and on art yeah. uh like uh Latin American games and more specifically Brazilian games look amazing. And uh, I feel like maybe the next step is to step up our knowledge and our craft by designing rules. I think that we have okay. a good presentation that's covered and it's really good and, uh, and in a lot of ways uh, better than the traditional space. But uh, we might have to push a little bit forward on actually designing rules and mechanics and all that. Yeah, I think it's, it is. I mean, even like with Brazil, I think about the there's a long history with comic book artists mm. as well. And yeah, I think you've you've kind of mentioned this too. So I mean, it's just yeah. So it's it's cool to see what's coming out of there right now. Oh yeah. So. And I'm excited too because I I feel like there's we've have the wave right now of the the Swedish RPGs just running rampant to the US. And so just thinking about how different regions of the globe that can potentially that success can potentially be imitated here. So yeah, I'm totally. so that's something that I'm excited for. Yeah, so. the, the the idea is to exchange ideas and you know and and be able to present different perspectives and to learn from them. Uh like hegemonies are always bad. Uh, if everything is the same, then you never get to learn anything new. You never get to grow. Uh, the main issue that we have uh, with RBG Latam is that being in the global south, and this is something that we share with um, the RPG scene. Uh, is we just have less resources. Uh, like our 
most of our economies are crumbling. Uh, it's really difficult. Uh, we don't get as much exposure, and that's why I'm really thankful that you're giving me this space. Uh, yeah. And also, like, we have this, this huge barrier that is language, uh, because, you know, I am, I am not a native, as you can tell, I am not a native uh, <laughs> English speaker, and, you know, most of us are not. Uh, I was fortunate to know English before getting into game design, but, uh, you know, that's not the case. And we have really cool people that don't have an, an internal market here. Uh, we have a lot of people that cannot read English, so they cannot be exposed to different games. We have a different monopoly that is uh, most of our uh, of the Spanish translated games, if not all, are translated on Spain, which has this a whole lot of colonialism problems uh, that uh, you know are not seen by the Western, mainly U.S. or or European lot. Uh, so yeah, we have a lot of issues and problems that we and hurdles that we have to go through to get something published and something out there. So every time that I see an RPG Latam game, uh, you know, I'm just baseline proud of the people who were able to put the effort and release it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, you definitely, uh, I always feel bad when I, um, talk to people who are i would consider you fluent in english just like <laughs> and i'm like oh, i don't really speak any other language <laughs> so no the uh the, i mean there's yeah like you said the resources i even think always i always think i always go back to kickstarter and this is an oh, yeah. opportunity for throw a jab at kickstarter it's just like it's just not the same level of support there's countries that aren't even allowed to use it so yep. it's wild so how do people get your game then well, you can look me up in itch.io. I know that that's a difficult platform to navigate, but if you look for me, who is Murder Hobo, that's M-R-D-R-H-O-B-O, that itch.io, you will find my games. Um, uh, you can find me like on Twitter as, um, as at Duam, that's D-U-A-M-N-N-F-R. Uh, that's my handle, and I don't know, like, um, just uh, look me up on on each that you. That's basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a yeah. People should get this. This is what I was I was kind of talking to you beforehand. Mm -hmm. I saw this. I've seen this for a while. I've wanted to talk about this for a while. You reached out, so I'm like, okay, this is the time we will do this. <laughs> and I'm going through this game, and I'm like, people need to, even if they don't play it, they just need to see it. I was, I, I don't know if you've tracked how many hours you've put into this game, oh, but it had to have been a lot. I'm not even counting, no. no okay, not presents, even counting. <laughs> so, also, I mean, even if they, yeah, so if you get it on itch, I will say this, it is really good looking on an iPad in landscape mode. Oh, yeah. So, so that, I'm not sure if that was intentional, but like, or just like, but, it's, but is there a print? Can people get, print of this game we are working on it uh because mainly because we have to get back to backers who have paid for the physical version but sadly i cannot give you 
uh, like a number uh, or a direction yet. Yeah. Uh, the people at Mordite Press, that's Mordite, uh, that press, you can find them there. Uh, they are handling printing and they are putting a lot of work. Uh, like uh, Owen is hand printing the whole thing. Uh, wow. Which is, yeah, I mean, it's. That's a zine. I mean, that is the definition yeah. of a zine. Yeah, so. totally. And uh, he's really passionate about it, which matches. Uh, my passion about Noctis Labyrinth. So that's a, that's a, a nice companion to have in this process. Yeah. Uh, so the moment that we have prints, uh, I mean, if you follow Mordor Hobo or if you follow me, you will get notified because I will be screaming to the four winds. Of- yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hope you, I mean, I'm glad it's something that you want to do. I mean, I'm glad, I hope that people can see this game. I like know, in true. printed form, so that's very cool. All right, I, I I think we will also we will include all that information in our show notes and everything. Awesome. So make it easy for people. But all right, so as we wrap up, the question that I always like to ask people is: We've talked about a lot of stuff, but if there's one last thing that you have to tell people about Noctis Labyrinth, what is it? Uh, reach out to me. I know that most of us are broke. Uh, I will give you a free copy. <laughs> That's it. Now, I mean, it's weird fantasy. Uh, it's weird fantasy. You can get weird with it, and the game will be better for it. Yeah, it's. Hey, you could definitely get weird with this, and I absolutely, I, I really do. I, I appreciate your your forwardness. The whole idea about like just wanting people to see yeah. this game so absolutely if you can get if you can afford to get this do it because i think it's well worth it so folks so uh Dwayne, thank you so much for joining me today oh thank you yeah no problem all right folks uh this is tom uh as always we'll include all the stuff in our show notes go check out noctis labyrinth you know i talk a lot about layout and stuff um and this is good so do it all right so as we close out every show don't forget if you're having fun you're doing it right thanks everyone thanks for listening to the rpg academy podcast we do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors welcoming more people into this community all of our website content will always be free to use and utilize But there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy. Or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. 
The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.